0: Hello, and welcome to Business Without With Andy Ori and me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, Ori Clark is Uh, one of the UK's only, if not the only, multidisciplinary practice. And that means that it is both a legal and an accountancy firm. And uh, one of the people, one of its directors is my co-presenter on this programme, Andy Ori. And Andy made the observation that so many of the firm's clients, so many of his and his partner's clients are doing so many interesting and amazing things. He wanted to get those stories out to a wider audience and the means to do that is this podcast so andy hello how are you doing and who have we got on the show today
1: hello dominic i am fab um we have the wonderful david rogers uh who originally trained actually at uri clark for his sins uh, and then went off into the world uh, lived in in Mexico before becoming CFO of a uh, international aerospace company, uh, a very exciting area, um, and uh, he, he is here with us today all the way from Australia. If, of all the places you've lived, J- Dave, you've lived in a few places. I, uh, Dave, amusingly. Um, got a bit fed up doing accountancy, and we had lots of chats. I remember, and then one day he turned around. And he said, "Do you know what? It's not the job. It's not the firm. It's not you. It's not account. It's just I don't want to be an account- accountant like in accountancy. I'm going to go surf on a beach in Mexico." And he went and did it. And and speak Spanish. And I was, you uh, know, you know, you'd already learned Spanish. So I, I, one of the things I really respect about you, mate, is you, you, you. you you decide you want to do something and you go and do it, you know, and you stick at it and make it happen. I mean, you know, um, what was... Unsurprisingly, that was a very good year. I bet it was. And what's the Mexican perspective on the world once you live there and stuff?
2: Um, it was kind of paradise where I was in on, on the coast in Oaxaca. It was amazing. But, you know, it was definitely touched by mankind. The best thing about it was that community aspect it. People didn't sit indoors in the evening watching TV. People were out in the street sort of mingling and coexisting. And it was well, it was weird, to be honest, but wonderful.
0: Tell us um, how you ended up going from Mexico to Australia. I came back to the UK. Um, Why
2: did you leave Mexico in the first place? I left Mexico because I had an email from our dear friend Hugh Williams. Andy had met in London the CEO of the company that I work for now. So, Ori Clark, as I'm sure you know Dominic, they specialize in assisting overseas businesses enter and operate in the UK, um, both on the accounting and and legal aspects of setting up an overseas entity. So, at the time, Ferrell had taken the decision to restructure and headquarter out of the uk so we're actually a uk headquartered business um with the intention we, we have a lot of us clients but we weren't close to companies such as airbus and Safran, etc um and he ferrell were looking for a, a a CFO for the new UK office, and Hugh suggested me. So I had an email from him saying, "Would you be interested in speaking to this guy?" And I was on the beach, and I thought, "No, God, no." Um, <laughs> but as it's as it's Hugh, I'll I'll hear him out. Like I don't want to be I don't want to be rude. Um, and then I spoke to Mark, and it, it was an interesting conversation. And and we left it that we'd speak again in a week. And I think I had two or three phone calls where I had a reasonable looking shirt on and board shorts underneath the table and flip-flops and I tried to look presentable and pretend that I wasn't living the life of Riley. And then agreed that I would, I would go and start working in the UK.
1: It was a um, good opportunity. I think that's the, that's the truth of it. It had come to you on a plate, you know, a well-paid, good opportunity. And there, you know, I, do, I, I don't know, I always just assumed you get to that point sitting on the beach when it's like, well, this is great. Because I 'm living off foreign earnings, do you know what I mean, or I'm in that position, but am I going to go local and then struggle like everyone else
2: yeah it was it was an artificial life in many ways, um, you know and it, it, there wasn't the longevity there, but almost everything I've done since is to try and get back there um, <laughs> I, I miss it, I miss it i don't know it's good uh, you know in, interestingly then I, I spent probably two years in London. And the brexit vote had happened I think maybe three or four months before I got the first call with with Ferrer. Um, and it was all very uncertain. and as that's progressed, you know being in the UK isn't fantastic for European opportunities further than that. a year later, Donald Trump came into power, and the u s um, you know, made in America and defense spending and everything. Our business became very U.S. centric very quickly, just because the sheer scope of business in the U.S. had increased vastly over the rest of the world, including Australia. So, we made the decision to change the UK head office to Washington DC. And in February 2019, I applied for my visa for the U.S. and I'm still waiting.
1: I wonder why.
2: Which has been an interesting experience. Hmm. So, it, without having an office in the UK and without being allowed to go and work in the US, I'm, I'm here in Australia, which hasn't been a bad place to sit out the pandemic, if I'm honest.
1: And now with remote working, surely you could go live in Mexico and do your job.
2: This is right. You can speak to him next time. This is what I say, <laughs> but it's it's not met with open arms as as I'd expect.
1: What do you think the, I mean, going in a slightly different direction, given uh, a wonderful word beginning with C, um, what's going on with aerospace? You, are they still making planes?
2: It's pretty, I mean, yeah, the, the, side the we do um, commercial work and we do some military work, defence. It's called commercial defence in the industry. And as with most sort of government stuff on the defence side, if anything, programmes are being accelerated, they're trying to um keep jobs and industry going, which is good. So that's um that's helpful. On the commercial side, it's looking pretty bleak at the moment. I mean, we do a reasonable amount of work with Boeing and they had issues with the 737 Max variant. So that was big for, for them as a business and that flowed down to the supply chain. And they were saying that they were just getting ready to sort that out before before the pandemic hit. Maybe they were, maybe they won't, but then the pandemic hit. So not only now has that slowed down the end of that process for them, it means that their backlog of aircraft that they were selling, a lot of them have been cancelled or postponed or delayed. And the, just the sheer numbers, of the people aren't flying at the moment, but the question is, is it just going to bounce back to the same numbers as before? Look at—I mean, I'm in Australia now. You're in the, the UK. This is all right, isn't it? Do I need to do a 24-hour flight to come and see you face
1: to face? It's debated for a podcast. Yes, I think so. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I think I think the things are becoming sort of clearer. Is it's harder to train people, and um, there's some stuff. You know, there's some so like like. We're realizing when you take you no, know, like you when you, well, you were you you were quite mature in a way with great uh, respect. If that doesn't sound ridiculous, but you know you get people who come straight out of university and they very much are the mentality of a kid. I mean, they don't they've been spoon fed. They don't really you know they think they're wonderful and they don't take the responsibility seriously. They think it's all a sort of I'm asked to do something and I sort of do whatever and then you know, there'll be an exam. It's all sort of, um, what should I say? It's like, yeah, it's fed, the pressure's on you. It's that switch to like, no, you're responsible. Like you've got to do it right and all of that. And we find, I think we're going to find without an office environment and people at home, it's quite hard to give them that, there's that intensity in an office environment. Do you know what I mean? People are, you know, people are working. People are, some people are quite highly stressed. They're dealing with very, you know, quite difficult situations and someone sort of sitting at home being sort of emails popping up isn't maturing necessarily as an adult. So I think there is some oh, d- aspect yeah.
2: there. I don't think you need to be stressed to be an adult, although I've found invariably that you are. I don't think it's a prerequisite <laughs> for the job. But, I mean, this is this is an interesting topic of culture. Um, how do you keep or create a culture without being in the same place? Because it's not just, you know, you're talking about training and getting trainees to understand what it's about. But you also need to keep experienced people understanding, in your case, the Allie Clark way. You know, what if you want to change the culture? What if you move into slightly different... Um, business and you need people to be more this or more that. How do you change that when everybody's sitting at home in their own office in the other side of a glass screen? I think that is is very difficult. I think you know one of the things I found we had lockdown in in Australia, which doesn't sound like it was anywhere as severe as the UK, um, but for six weeks I was working from home and I got a lot more done. I had far fewer interruptions and that was good. But um, I did notice that the, the more long-term projects were suffering, you know you're not interacting with people as frequently. and it's I don't know there's something intangible about being there and you know being able to make casual comments as you're walking past someone's office or as you're, as you meet in the kitchen making a cup of tea. You miss that interaction and so you're not as aligned. Um, and I think culture helps incredibly with alignment of, of a workforce and driving towards a common
1: goal. Your culture is a very good word, mate. And it's funny when you say the word culture because it's a giant word, but a culture is like, yeah, it's such an indefinable thing, isn't it? It's like what happens when you stick 100 people in a building, you know, for a while, you know, who, which dominant characters or, you know, um, uh, 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 drive some sort of sense of it. When you say longer term projects, you mean... The sort of, they struggle because...
2: We struggle, I think, you know, we struggle. So I'm talking now about the finance finance department. Changes that I want to implement, what I think and hope are improvements. You know, it's easier to work on things that take time, that iterate, that over time build into a new way of doing things. Um, if you're there together and you're doing it and, and when challenges come up, they can be resolved. Now, if you're all doing it in disparate locations it's difficult to keep sort of momentum, I guess. The day-to-day operational stuff, if anything, improved because we were all doing our own thing on our own time. You're not doing these arbitrary office hours where I'm a bit tired, but I'm sitting in my uncomfortable work seat, so I just crack on with it. Okay, it's five o'clock, I'm going home. Mm. I'm, I've got no doubt that some people, if they didn't feel like it, went downstairs, had a cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit and you know, didn't worry about the... work that they were doing and then went back up to the office and got the work done you know the work was done if anything better than it was before on the operational stuff but on the on the i guess long term the more team driven items the lack of contact suffered
1: can i ask a controversial question which is the one that always bothers me and there's a there's a, a famous poem i like by um this crazy rapper guy but um which is all about sort of Americans who are pacifists need to understand that they have all this food and they have all this stuff because of their military might. And this is just a really uncomfortable modern relationship with, well, maybe it's always been an uncomfortable relationship, but it's such a complicated subject now in terms of, you know, the ethical considerations of military power. You know, if you're a British person and you think, that I'm a pacifist and I don't want anything to do with war then you have no understanding of our history because we have been an incredibly warlike country you know and you Yes yeah, but it, I think your morality powerful, isn't, maybe
2: your morality isn't predicated on your ancestry just because Britain has been a military power and you're born in the UK doesn't mean that you can't be a pacifist you can understand that history and still disagree with it um I understand that you're sort of taking advantage of the good fortune that then has come to the UK from its pillaging, um, you know, centuries before.
1: Yeah, I see your point, that you don't have an ethical dilemma in that aspect. I think I think there's just, um, there's a sort of real uncomfortable with this with it, isn't it? It's the whole, you know, should you sell arms abroad and everything, you know, the, the UK is one of the largest arms sellers in the world, and it's a sort of nightmare discussion. I don't want to relate it to Farrah, i just more on a sort of, you know you have something to do with that industry is it is it is it unfair the criticism of we all got to grow up you know is it or, or the opposite it's a sort of impossible question but i'm curious on what you think
2: i'm not um i'm not overly comfortable with it myself you know the, the the concept of a military i mean it's naive to think that we should just nobody should have a military there are bullies in the school playground you know it's Mm. It, it's almost part of human nature in some ways um there's some good things that come out of it as well you know are the r d spending of defense is huge some some incredible innovation has come out from that would it be nicer if the u.s spent trillions of dollars on innovation rooms instead yeah that would that would be fantastic. Is it going to employ as many people? You know, I'm not sure. You don't forget that this, you know, the the US military, if you look at it, feeds, homes, clothes hundreds of thousands, millions of of citizens from effectively from state aid. So I don't know. I'm not. We don't make arms. We don't um,
1: deal in but that element a of defense. Decision, is it as a firm? There's a conscious decision? It's a conscious, to conscious sort decision, of say, well.
2: decision as a firm and. Mm-hmm. You know, but we have a, a number of ex-military people who are working in the business and, you know, especially over in, in the US, they're sort of, who are military and, and I, I get that and it's obviously being a good, you know, it's it's remembered with fond memories from them, so it's being good to them in that sense. Me personally, I'm I'm not sure what I think of it and I'm not overly comfortable. It'd be great if we... I'm not sure I'm comfortable with planes either, Andy. You know, the amount of damage that it's doing environmentally to the world. But I've flown hundreds of thousands of kilometres and I love it. So I don't, you know, I'm a bit torn on, on all of this. Am I working for the devil? Possibly, but probably
0: not. You know, like...
1: Where are you on this, Dom? What's the position of a comedian on this subject? Well, or you just—I I well can't away?
0: speak for comedy, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I tend to disagree with comedians on most subjects. But the um, <laughs> the you know, if you want to get on in life and succeed, the reality is you have to do things that are environmentally uh, unfriendly, so you can you know, whether it's flying or whatever it is, there's just all, you know, if, 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 if you boil the, the environmental argument down to its essence, no human being would do anything. And the irony of that is that if no human being did anything, we wouldn't progress and lives would be a lot worse and they would be, they would be a lot shorter. And so if there is a solution to, you know, a way of saving the environment, saving the world, climate change, all this stuff, it surely lies in improved technology and advancement. And the irony of that is that in order to advance, you have to do things that are not particularly friendly to the environment. So it's an impossible moral quandary and you can't keep everyone happy. And I think the most, the way that most people deal with it is they. Sort of pay a little bit of lip service to it. Maybe they make some donations, some carpet credits, whatever, to sort of offset their guilt, and then they carry on as they are. But it's an impossible. It's just an. It's an impossible dilemma that that this argument puts people in.
1: But I guess the one re- re- resolution is the purpose, isn't it? If you just take the simple example of should Dave get on a flight if he could, he won't be able to do July next year and come to the UK, you know, um, for a meeting or for a thing. That purpose needs to be very justified, doesn't it? And that, and what you and me are saying, Dave, is there is not the justification there. I can see the justification to go see my mum and dad, or you know, to to do it for a much more emotional reasons. Because frankly, you know, zooming my family is about as fun as headbutting the wall. Frankly, but you know, we try and pretend it's fun. I'm sure you you have
0: similar experiences. Well, the the irony the irony is is that like. The reason people are going to travel less is not to save the planet. It's because of all the inconvenience <laughs> of COVID. Either, either the fear of getting it or just, you know, the sheer inconvenience of, of, you know, whatever it's going to be, COVID passports and getting tested and longer in the airport and having to wear masks and all the things that COVID has done. Did you see those um, satellite shots, though, of over China, So sort of the day before lockdown? And then two weeks later? I haven't, but I can imagine what they look like. And I imagine one, the sky was clear and the world was a beautiful place. And in the other, it was a smoggy, polluted mire. Shit show. Tell us, David, um, I'm going to just change the subject a little bit. Like, you sort of don't think as accountancy as a very kind of techie profession, but it is, is in fact really you know, it's all numbers. There's huge amounts of tech and computers and software involved in it, of course. So why don't you tell us how accountancy has changed um, from the days that you began practicing and to now? Sure. Um, I mean, short form accountancy, I
2: suppose itself in its purest form hasn't changed, but certainly the way in which it it's done, has changed quite a lot, I think. I mean, I, I trained with Ori Clark 2008, I think I started. And I still remember one of my first jobs was being given a, a box of receipts and papers from one of the local farmers. And I had to put together the the accounts for that farm. And thankfully, I had Microsoft Excel, which was great. And I'm sure people before me, uh, Andy probably still had Excel. I'm sure your father, who's at Ori Clark, didn't um, and you'd have to do it we still had these big A3 analysis pads which I think were kind of a, a leftover from times before but you'd have to do it all by hand we had to do it using Microsoft Excel um, and it's pretty arcane and you think that's 2008 it's 2020 now and it's a far cry from those days. The next sort of iteration was having the client send you their software in on a memory stick and if you had the right version of the software, and you were both running the same version, you might be able to open their books and records and, and check their numbers and prepare the accounts. Um, and just as I was leaving Auri Clark, which I think was about 2014, 15, companies like Zero Xero, Xero, um, and others were doing some great stuff in, in the cloud. So it's kind of normal now to have a lot of companies having their their software, their accountancy books and records up in the cloud where I can log on if I was in practice. Andy can log on to his clients and and get their information direct, which I think is great.
1: Do you think that people ran businesses worse back in the day? I mean, what I remember, I did actually join the firm before there were Excel. So I was doing it manually when I first joined and I would go lie down in the toilet (laughs) because I couldn't (laughs) handle it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, do you, you know, what always sort of fascinated me is you'll meet a lot of good entrepreneurs people are good at making money they always have their own separate system often like you go oh well you know here's all the accounting thing and they'll say well I kind of ignore all of that and I've got this thing over here on the back of a fag packet and that's how I know I'm making money you know yep. do you do you recognise that as well the sort of
2: well I think your question at the beginning that was our businesses were they doing things worse before? Yeah. I just think probably that the competition, the the baseline is probably better. I mean, look at football, which I know you love, Andy, but, Mm. you know, you see, I was just watching a documentary last night on Diego Armando Maradona and he was brilliant and you're watching it and he was brilliant, but actually put him in the Premier League now and he's probably a few yards off the pace. He's probably got some good skills, but the general level of, competition has increased in the last 50 years. More people Mm. are digging into numbers more and getting it. So if you're not blessed with your own system and you go and use software and get a bit more information, it's easier to get the information and it's easier to do a bit better. But it's easier for everybody. So everybody's doing a bit better. So in order to make it, you still need to have a bit of nous about you and understand the business that you're in. And so really, I think the whole general level has gone up and the businesses weren't worse before it was just different you know like you had to beat the guy who you're in competition with and if you're playing at a different level you're playing at a different level you're not worse does does that make sense yeah
1: and I guess the argument you're almost making is the training of accountancy is possibly no longer fit for purpose possibly it hasn't been for a long time because as you remove the number crunching uh, that kind of sort of meticulous work that accountants are associated with. You're left with much more creative, you know, lateral, or you know, much more sort of, what is it, left brain or whatever, much more trying to interpret and trying to think what this all means. I think so. I don't I mean, know whether those I are the same people.
2: I was thinking about this the other day. I think there's, this comes back, I, I don't think that the, the training of accountants is but. Is is not fit for purpose. I think it's a skill set that is needed. I just think it needs to be applied a bit wider. But if you look at the driver for the skill set of the accountants, and I'm sure you'll agree with me this to a certain level, nobody wants an accountant, right? That was the hardest thing with business development at O'Reilly Clark is you go to these functions, and there's people that you could either buy your, pro- <laughs> you know, your supplies off cheaper, and they'd be a good contact, or there's someone that could be your customer and give you a big sales order. And then there's someone like me or you who's trying to, you know, get your accountancy business, and you need an accountant primarily because you need to file a tax return because you need to pay the revenue. You know that is the purpose of it. Then you might be big enough that you need legally to have an audit so that your investors in the bank and stuff know that the numbers are correct. That's sort of what has predicated the existence of accountants in many ways. But there is huge added value. So it turns out if you've got a good accountant, it's a
0: huge asset. There's this um, idea that, that the oldest profession in the world is, is ladies of the night. And it probably is the oldest profession in the world. But accountancy runs a close second. And uh, the reason I say this is that um, the very first systems of handwriting that were developed in ancient Mesopotamia were little clay tokens. And, you know, like a disc would represent a sheep and a uh, a cone would represent a bit of barley. And they would bake these tokens inside um clay balls. And this that was how the record of a particular transaction was, or a particular debt that was owed was preserved. And then when the debt was settled, the clay ball would be smashed open. And then they found that it was more efficient, instead of baking these tokens in clay balls, simply to inscribe the clay balls with pictures of the items in question. And that's how the first systems of writing developed. And um, the people who mastered this were the scribes, And the scribes were basically the first tax collectors and the first accountants. (laughs) So that would have been a good opportunity for somebody in, you know, 5,000 years BC or something. If he learned how to inscribe these bits of clay, he earned a good living. So I guess my question is, how important is it for an accountant to be tech savvy uh, in this sort of fast or an accountancy firm, I guess? How important is it to be, you know, using the latest bit of kit and and so on i mean from my
2: side it's imperative businesses will will move on and leave you behind i think if you if you're an experienced accountant and you've got the skills you can get given the information um and understand what that information is telling you you can add value you can ask people to go and do things for you but those people who are doing things for you, who are they? Do they work in your firm? If your firm doesn't have the technology, they can't get the information for you either. So I think, um, I mean, I'm not in an accountant in practice anymore, so I don't know what you think on that, Andy, but I'm, I'm sure all the were up to date with technology when I was there. And if we weren't, I don't know what, what would have happened. The information, the way it was presented and received, changed so quickly in the eight years that I was there. It's it's incredible, really.
1: It, it's it's um it's a huge uh, area of change, and uh, we're having to in- invest loads of people's times in, you know, as you mentioned, zero. This platform for accountancy has come along, and they're introducing you know add-ons to it, sort of apps to it, every day. So we now have to have a bunch of people who spend half of their time trying to understand all this new shit being released and what is important what is helpful to the client. Um, and then it, it, it's like all those things, isn't it? I think I think we have this utopic idea that if we could have one ring to all them all, if we could build this perfect system and all the information ended up in it and it was all perfect. I think the reality, I think that's extremely hard utopia that some larger companies try and do with SAP and still have notable disasters, not, not least uh, some famous ones. But um what we find is it's quite there's just little bits this sort of um you know getting little bits working right is okay because that's that's almost what you have to do at the moment because you've got employment systems you've got financial systems as you say everything's just data i mean turning the question around what would you say to an entrepreneur about what is important for them to you know especially a crazy entrepreneur who's not very you know not very run by numbers particularly you know what do they need to do because there's data entry but then there's all this technology and how much do they need to care about it or you know how does that how does that work is the cfo's role just to keep the ship tidy or is it to you know do more than that
2: i mean yeah it's interesting i think that i think the cfo role is is to drive change you know it's the, it's the financial controller's role to keep the ship tidy, and then you know the management need to to lead the business in the right direction to keep up with the change in times let's talk about sap for a moment we use it we're actually going oh, do you? yeah and we're going right. through an, an Sorry, upgrade to their s4 hana platform which is their new I think they called it something like fifth generation, but it, it's you know barely first in my opinion. Just what, what's SAP? Just very quickly, what's SAP? It's uh, an ERP system. Does that answer your question? <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, this is kind of what I was talking about, Dominic. It's, it's an enterprise resource platform, but it's all in one. So it's one computer system to run every. Um, area of your business it started in Germany I think back in the early 90s maybe 80s and it's grown and, and grown um, but they were known for best practices so pick an industry They'd have a best practice for that industry and you would the, the computer software would effectively dictate your business processes because that's the best way to do it and it would mean that you'd have good governance dual signs off for, for payments and things like this Um, So if you invested the money in installing SAP, which is eye-watering, then you can um, run the business in best practice and you can have all of this data, you can capture all of this data rather than leaving it to chance without the SAP best practices and not having it recorded. And, you know, for a business like us in, in manufacturing, aerospace or otherwise, you take a piece of raw metal and machine it and add other bits to it and you know you get end up with a finished product a wingtip that goes on one of the Boeing planes not one of the ones that's grounded at the moment thankfully and we can tell you like which nut was used on that wingtip and how much that cost us you know and as part of our profitability if the price of screws went up that month it would affect it and you, and you can tell so that there's reams and reams of data there but it's very very good at gathering data and as with mostly, most things at the moment I think you know we're, we are changing at the moment from getting bits of paper in boxes to having some computer processing power, to be able to store information in the cloud so now loads of things can throw data up there. So businesses are getting really good at gathering data. I just don't think we're very good at using it.
1: Can I ask you this? Because uh, maybe as a sort of way to sort of start closing is is what I've always been fascinated with you, Dave, is that you said, like, I want to learn Spanish. And you went and did it. I mean, you moved countries, you, 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 you just like went for it and that was before you went to Mexico you were like I want to learn the piano and you, you went and learned the piano and it's there's something in your brain that I find is quite unusual to go and do that people think oh I'd love to learn Spanish and then they dick about with it and don't do it where do you think that comes from why, why are you like that
2: <laughs> um, I do struggle quite a lot with the question what's the point you know what what's it all about you only live once right there's no repeat you don't get to do it again and I think learning, and they're both the two things you've illustrated there. are Learning, um, you know, if you ask me about something else, I'm sure I would not be anywhere near as good as other people. It's think, I like learning. I think I think the expanding your experiences, which travel does quite quite easily. Simply go somewhere else; it's a new experience, so that's good. You know, learning another language is learning another way of thinking. Learning the piano is to be honest is, is a pleasure, so that that's for fun. But I, I enjoy learning. I think, you know, you've got to amass as much experience as possible, good or bad, and, and then you've lived a full life.
0: Because otherwise, what else is there?
1: The determination is interesting. People think that, but they don't do it. So you've obviously got an ability to sort of, you're not scared of, sac- because to do stuff, you've got to sacrifice.
2: Not just oh, do you? I, I, I mean, you know, yeah, do you. So, I, I, you know, I enjoyed learning a language. If I didn't, I don't think I would have done it. I enjoy learning the piano. If I didn't, I wouldn't have done it. Um,
1: yeah, okay. You, do you know, I, the... I
2: think yeah, I, I would agree with you. If, if it's a sacrifice, then you, you have to sort of bloody mindedness comes into it and you have to push yourself to get through. And there's only so much of that, that you can do. And I think I topped out at the end of my tax exams. <laughs> <And> never <laughs> again.
1: <laughs> you did, yeah. Are you, is there, you, there's nothing on the list at the moment. You haven't got something written on the list. I want to be a dog trainer or... Never.
2: I'm learning at the, at the moment, I've got piano lessons, so I'm, I'm learning it properly this time, which is good, and uh, I've just started a course on Python, the programming language.
1: Very cool. What's Python for?
0: I don't uh, know yet that's why I'm doing the course good stuff good for you it's very healthy to to, to keep learning all the time Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I I admire your your energy and your zeal and your desire to learn and improve yourself and we can all learn from that but as we close um, would you like to just let our listeners know how they can find out more about you maybe where they can follow you on social media or find out about your company um yep social media is, is pretty much non-existent
2: for me um probably should be that's something i've been thinking about in this changing times but ferro groupcom is, is where you can find out about the business and i'm on the website there um and david.rogers at ferro groupcom is my email address
1: And there's there's one other important thing we haven't mentioned, Dave, is, is I sent an email around the accounting firm many moons ago saying, can anyone play an instrument? And was was it was, it was uh, blown away to find a, co- a couple of people good uh, to a great degree. And Dave is a, a very good songwriter, so actually we've been writing uh, music for years under the moniker of Big Terror. So you, you you should look up look up something called Big Terror on Spotify and other platforms.
0: I'm not going to type Big Terror in. I'll get, I'll be like reported to the authorities by Google. It's,
1: it's off the cover of a record, actually. Yeah, Big Terror. Anyway, yeah. I
0: assume that's why we don't have more followers, Andy, for that one reason. Good stuff. Well, David Rogers, Andy Uri, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dominic. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without (coughs) B****. Until then, from Andy Uri and me, Dominic Frisby, it's cheerio.